Welcome to Glam City. I'm Anna Clark. Me, Tamsin Peach. And on Glam City, as you know, we speak to the hardworking people in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. And believe it or not, this is our third season. Get out of town. On this episode of Glam City, we're discussing Australia's shifting understanding of our own democratic and women's history with historian Associate Professor Claire Wright. Claire's a historian and broadcaster at La Trobe University and has written and produced award-winning books and documentaries such as The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, Beyond the Ladies' Lounge, The War That Changed Us and Utopia Girls. Now she's written this fantastic history of women's democratic change in Australia called You Daughters of Freedom. Claire, when did your interest in history begin? Oh, that's going back a long way now. Mm, Into the archives? Into the archives of my life. And the libraries and museums? Yeah, all of those sectors are involved. (laughs) Implicated. My life is very glamorous. I was one of those people who loved history at high school. There are not many of them, uh, as we know. There's four in this room. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're in the bubble, I suspect. But I loved history at high school. I did two histories in year 12. And I really fell in love with history when I was able to do my first research-based project. And we had to go out and do something from primary sources. And I'm not sure whether they still do this in high school, but they really should, because this is the way that I think you get hooked in. Because it was the first time that I had that opportunity to do the deep dive into the sources and the documents and that detective work, that going down rabbit holes and seeing whether you can find answers to questions and getting completely lost in the archives. And I remember spending two weeks in the State Library of Victoria, locked in the microfilm room and the manuscripts room over my spring vacation um, when everybody else in Melbourne was being sensible and still kicking the footy around and I locked myself in and in some ways I've never let myself out so then I did history at university I started law I found that I was frustrated at how much time law took away from my history studies so I packed it in and continued to do history and did an honours an MA a PhD a postdoc and so I've just kind of never left uni So why do you think history matters? I think history matters because it's a process of asking questions. That's where all good history starts. And then I think it's about going back to those sources where you're going to find those answers and then just really listening to the archive, what it's got to tell you. And you just listen quietly to what the voices of the past are telling you and then try to write their story from the ground up. And I think that's important because the questions that we ask matter and they get us out of our heads and out of our own times and try to understand people from the perspective of where they were coming from, try to really get away from that idea that the past is just us in funny clothes. We have a beautiful copy of your book, You Daughters of Freedom, on our desk. It has an amazing, vivid colour. What were the questions that you wanted to ask of this history? in particular. Can you tell us a little about the project and who your Daughters of Freedom are? I was in Canberra one time and I was at Parliament House and I happened to stumble across an item in Parliament House's collection. It's on display but it was in a kind of tucked away corner and you'd miss it easily if if you weren't either looking for it or passing through to Tom Roberts' painting of the 1901 inauguration of the Commonwealth Parliament, which is known as the big picture. And as you pass by that, there's this beautiful, huge artwork behind glass. 
and I stopped to have a look at it and I read the little card on the side and it was called the Women's Suffrage Banner and it was made by a woman called Dora Meeson Coates and what struck me was that I didn't know anything about this item and I was a feminist historian mm-hmm. and I had written about suffrage and I had made a documentary for television about suffrage, the Utopia Girls documentary, and yet I had never come across this and more importantly, I didn't really know what it meant and it was written across the top of the banner, Commonwealth of Australia and below it the words, trust the women mother as I have done. Clearly this was significant, significant enough to be painted across a huge banner and significant enough to be put behind glass and kept in the big house of Australian democracy. And I was kind of ashamed and embarrassed that I didn't know what it meant. This book was an effort for me to try to go back to that time when that banner was made. It was painted in 1908. It was made for the big suffragette rallies in Britain and it was also carried in 1911. And so this book is an attempt for me to understand what this message meant, who Dora Meeson Coates was, who were her contemporaries, why an Australian woman painted a banner such as this and paraded it in London, and what the people of the time understood about that banner. And as it turns out, it's an incredible story that really, for me, undermined so much of what I thought I knew about Australian history. Is it significant that it was or that it is tucked away in Parliament House, that it's not out there? Is that part of the reason why we don't know this history? Well, I think that it is not prominently displayed for a couple of reasons. If you ask Parliament House, they say it's an issue to do with lighting and the way that it has to be preserved. But I think that if it was valued as being part of our democratic heritage in the way that I think it should, if it was seen as an icon and a symbol of our national beginnings rather than just a kind of arcane and quite pretty item, a piece of women's craft work, (laughs) then you can build around it as Mm. far as I'm concerned. If you want the world to come and see this banner that all the world knew In 1911, when it was paraded in London, all the world knew what trust the women mother as I have done, what that meant and what the significance of it was. You know, if you want the millions of people who come to Canberra every year to see Parliament House and to understand something about Australia, to understand the country that we were and what we valued and what we were standing for in a global context, then I reckon you put this thing square in front of their faces. You've talked a couple of times here about Parliament House, democracy. Uh, You mentioned the big picture, which is, of course, about federation. You know, ask any kid in school about federation. You just get a massive groan and maybe they'll know about Henry Parks and his beard. But why is this central to the story of Australia's democratic history. Yeah, I think Anna has referred to Federation herself as the eat your broccoli moment in the history curriculum. That comes from the stories that she's been told by school students. I think this is such an important story because it it tells of that time in Australia's history when what we stood for was optimism and progress And we believed ourselves to be standing on the brink of a new dawn where the world was going to change, where modernity was upon us. It was coming to the end of the Victorian era. And there was this great sense that we were standing on the precipice of something new and big and world-changing, and Australia was part of that. 
and Australia was a leader in that movement. And the reason why was because Australia was the first country in the world to give women full political equality. That means the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament. And we're talking about white women here, and that's an important caveat. But in the understanding of the day, what this meant was championing a form of participatory democracy that was more inclusive and more expansive than in any other part of the world. This was a sign of Australia's pluck and its courage and its audacity and its self-confidence. And it was a model and a standard that the rest of the world should aspire to be. Australia was very self-conscious about that. And I think that we no longer really see Australia as a place that we associate with leadership, with being on the cutting edge of anything, with being even kind of competitive in a world sense except on the sporting field. And certainly we've become very familiar with the concept that Australia proved itself on the world stage on the beaches of Gallipoli, that it was World War I that really cemented our place in the world. And without showing any disrespect to the memory of the Anzacs and those who lost their lives, that's just factually not true. And that's what I found from going into the archives and listening to the sources. I was flabbergasted by just how in the spotlight Australia was and how much Australia had already proven itself Mm. on the world stage. And that was not through the efforts of young male soldiers, but largely through the efforts of women who had fought for political equality for decades. If this was such a kind of a, a moment of essentially rebellion and urgency and nation making, and there's a real momentum which comes through so powerfully in your book, why is it seen as boring and irrelevant? Why is it the eat your broccoli moment when actually there's this kind of drive for change, which is the stuff of historical interest, actually? Because I think this history has been written without the women in it. And I think the women's stories are what provide it with so much of that drive. You know, we tend to see Federation and our founding Federation fathers as being, you know, a bunch of dudes, you know, writing this constitution that is impenetrable and doesn't particularly say very much about us. There was no revolution. There's no particular battle that you can point to in terms of federation. It was a moment of contested but very collaborative outcomes. So I can see why students might think, Mm. well, that's boring. Where are the redcoats? Where are the Scottish warriors charging down the hill like in Braveheart when people are defending themselves and their rights? And I just think we've been looking in the wrong direction. There are certainly these stories of courage and recklessness and daring and, as you say, in rebellion and pushing through and being objectionable and demanding certain rights. But in a sense, it's been hiding in plain sight. And that's one of the things you draw out so well in your book is that this radical moment of the inclusion of women also is about the disenfranchisement of Aboriginal Australia. Can you tell us a bit more about that and also about how we can then celebrate that moment or think through that moment in the context of its shadow side. Yeah, this is the really tricky side of it. I think that these women who I talk about, and there are five in particular whose lives I follow through in in a narrative form, 
They are women who we should know and we should hold up as role models in some way and I think we should build statues to them. But I'm also perfectly prepared to concede that there will be people who want to tear those statues straight down because these women were also symbols and products and agents of white Australia. And white Australia was essentially the thread that bound together all of these disparate groups in Australia at the time. It was the one thing everybody could agree on, a notion of racial purity being part of the British race, a better version of the British race, a superior version that Australia was making down here, but no doubt a white version of the British race that Australians were very keen to police the boundaries of in terms of border protection, who could come here, but also who would be counted as Australians for the body politic. And that's a very complicated story. And one of the things that um, I found so fascinating about listening to the archives was actually to hear the voices of protest against what might seem now as, as more of a kind of inevitability that everybody just thought this way. There were people in Parliament who were advocating in terms of the passage of the Franchise Act that Indigenous people should have the right to vote. And they said things like, you know, we've taken their land away from them. We've stripped them of everything. How can we now also deny them the right to vote? And this was really unexpected to me, that there are these voices of dissent. But in the end, those voices didn't want women's suffrage to be scuttled for the sake of a more racially inclusive Australia. A gender-inclusive Australia was a bridge that was far enough to cross at this particular point in time. But one of the things that I think is important about going back to this history is that it does show that it was contested and that it wasn't inevitable. And it was an open debate. And there were voices on many sides. And I think that that is really important because it shows that those kinds of debates can continue now as well. It's not a closed book. History is not a closed book. Because you write this chapter, it doesn't mean that's the end to it. Actually, what it shows is that we still need to be having these conversations now, as people were 100 years ago, about who needs to be counted and how they are counted and how they are represented. And indeed, we still are debating the structure and the bounds and the viability of parliamentary democracy in this country and participatory democracy, both in terms of women's contribution to parliament, which we've seen in in recent debates, and also whether there's going to be an Indigenous voice in parliament and what that voice might take. And the the thing uh, I love about that is that it helps us remember that these are not natural, progressive, inevitable changes, that they are the acts of collective action, they're political, and they're about people making arguments and sometimes really contested arguments, you know, like involves standing in a street or jumping in front of the horse, you know, in the famous British case. I mean, you mentioned these great acts, and I'd love to tell us one of them. You know, we sometimes we're familiar with those the British suffragettes that have, you know, had to been in prison and been force fed. What's the Australian story? Actually, a third of this book is about how Australian women won these historic rights. But two-thirds of the book is about how these women then went and used their particular entitlement, their world-leading entitlement, to try to gain those rights for other women around the world. So how important they became as Australian statesmen, stateswomen, in the international struggle for suffrage. And 
One of those women was a woman called Dora Montefiore. And partly because we are more familiar with those throwing yourself in front of the horse acts. And they actually came later in the British campaign. That was in 1913 that Emily Wilding Davison did that. But earlier on in 1906, Dora Montefiore led a tax resistance movement. And there are, are so many of these scenes of passive resistance, of non-compliance, of basically a kind of acts of civil disobedience. And one of these involved Dora Montefiore. She refused to pay her British tax because she said she got no representation for that. Whereas in Australia, she was a voting woman and she was happy to pay her tax because she had representation that went along with it. So she refused to pay. She knew what the effect of that was going to be, which is that the British bailiffs were entitled to come to her house and seize goods of the equivalent value to her tax bill. So what she did was barricade her home. And there was a six-week standoff that was reported in all of the newspapers. They called it the Siege of Montefiore, or Fort Montefiore, they called it, and the Siege of Hammersmith, which is where she lived in London. And these were brilliant tactics because they were publicity stunts. They drew attention to the cause. They called it the cause. They had a very specific goal that women in general were trying to achieve, which was the vote, and there were various strategies for that, and Dora's was one of them. But it does show the value of activism and that you don't need to necessarily throw yourself in front of a horse. It doesn't necessarily involve personal sacrifice of a bodily nature, but it does involve putting yourself on the line in some kind of way. It wasn't a spot fire. It was part of a a wider organised campaign. So that is one of my favourite moments. And because the British suffragette movement was so internationally visible and because the Australian women were so visible within it, this was reported around the world. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and while you're there, leave us a rating to let us know what you think. Today on Glam City, we're talking to historian Claire Wright about her recent book, You Daughters of Freedom, which tells the story of Australia's suffragist movement. It really, as I said before, turns Federation into a page turner, which I've never <laughs> never had before. Hooray for Federation! That's partly because of your work as a historian and storyteller, but you also are doing forms of public history and popular history, and you're turning what is a broccoli moment of Australian history into, you know, creme brulee. <laughs> historian is MasterChef. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on down. Do I get an immunity pin? Yeah, you do. In all your other publications, you can pull it out. Your CV now spreads across scholarly publications and a number of public history making and audiences. What draws you across these different historical genres, I suppose, and also attempts to reach broader audiences? It is that, essentially. It is the desire to reach broader audiences. I think one of the problems with a story like suffrage is that it has been tied up in academic history for too long. And so parts of the story that I tell in this book will be familiar to some people um, who have studied women's suffrage, and there'll be familiar names and there'll be some familiar events. But to the large majority of Australians, this will be new. And in fact, 
when I started writing the book, I hadn't intended to tell the story of how Australian women won the vote. Because really the story that the women's suffrage banner that started me off told was about Australians going out into the world and helping their, as they called it, their less fortunate British sisters and trying to convince England to do what Australia had done. And that was the story that I thought I was going to tell. But I realised that in order to tell that, I couldn't assume that there was a background knowledge as to how this historic circumstance had come about. And I think that the problem is that some of these stories have not become part of a more mainstream historical knowledge and consciousness about Australia. And I guess that's what I like to do and why I think that it's important to use a variety of mediums. Television, documentary, I have a radio show at Radio National, which is also a podcast called Shooting the Past. I do a lot of public speaking. My last book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, was published as a young adult version, and it is now being taught in schools, because Eureka, of course, is a key foundation moment in Australian history. And so that has provided teachers and school students with a more inclusive and diverse way into the story. For me, it's it's about communication and being able to get these stories out to as many people as possible, because I actually, in the end, think that that enriches our participatory democracy. I think that makes us more informed citizens. And that sounds very much like an eat your broccoli kind of agenda. But I don't really mean it that way. I actually just think our national stories are more interesting if you put back in the players who were actually there at the time. And it is that storytelling element that you point out that also really draws me to it. I love Netflix as much as the next person. And what draws you in to Netflix? Why do people binge watch? It's because they want to know what happens next. You know, they're drawn into the story, into the characters. They're on an emotional journey. So I try to write my books in the same way. That leaves you wanting to know what happens next. And part of that as well is I try to write in in what I think of as real time, meaning that if the people that I'm writing about, Dora Montefiore or Vida Goldstein or Muriel Matters, if they don't know what happens next, then the audience shouldn't either. So one of the problems, I think, with history writing is that we write from the position of hindsight and that always gives us this omnipotence about the event, which ultimately sucks the drama out of it. That's fascinating because you have laid out a whole set of genres there. There's script writing, there's radio scripting, there's this fat book that has footnotes at the end. We usually think of this fat book, which is incredibly readable and narrative-driven in the ways that you said, but it still has footnotes. We think of that as history. Are all those other genres also history? Absolutely. History is the stories that we tell about ourselves. History is not the past. Those are two different things. The past is a time concept and history is a construct. You go to the sources and you listen to the answers to the questions that you pose and then it's what you do with it next that's history so it seems to me that in your practice you're making another kind of argument about the importance of thinking about the past and who gets to do it and that's it's everybody that's interested in pastness it is and i think more people will be interested in pastness if they see themselves as part of that past one of the problems is that another form of history making is, say, statue building or naming. If you name streets and federal electorates and buildings and banks, 
after certain people and 99% of those people are men, people walking past those places, walking down those streets, seeing those statues, imbue the message and internalise the message that it is those people who have made history. And I think that has an effect on how people then go about their daily lives in terms of whether they think they are active citizens who have agency and might be able to create futures. So if these people, uh, every, everyday readers and so on, are part of our desired audience as historians, do academic historians, what do we need to do to reach audiences like this, do you think? I think that... Open the studio door, Tamsin. <laughs> come on down. Yeah, come on down. I don't know what our producer would <laughs> I think that history is a very broad table and that we can pull our chair up to it in many ways. So I am not dissing what academic historians do. It's not... Um, Some of your best friends are academic historians n- in this room, maybe. I have been known to say that. <laughs> Comma, but... <laughs> I find that, you know, sometimes my work is dismissed by academic historians as being a bit lightweight or a bit generalist, that I don't do things like acknowledge everything that everybody else has ever said on the topic, which is generally how academic history works. There's a lot of scaffolding in academic history, isn't there? There is. You build those scaffolds that say, look, those scaffolds say, this is what I'm going to do. This is why I'm going to do it. This is how my work fits into everything else that's ever been done about it. And then you say, look, I just did what I told you I was going to do, so don't criticise me. And the biggest influence in my history making has been by being taught by Greg Denning. Greg Denning used to say... Greg Denning, historian at University of Melbourne... Greg Denning was at that point an historian at the University of Melbourne and then he went on to teach the course that I did. It was a workshop called Challenges to Perform and he went on and taught that at ANU for many years. Greg Denning said that the problem with academic writing, and he didn't mean just history writing, but academic writing in general, is that academics imagine a thousand foes. And... I think he was spot on. And I feel like what Greg did was to give me permission not to be afraid anymore. And I think that we really do spend a lot of time fearing that if you make a statement or say something, somebody's going to tap on you on the shoulder and say, but what about, or have you read, or how does that fit into somebody's theory of? And that presumption that that's what's going to happen makes us write in a particularly defensive way that I don't think is very appealing to readers. It might be part of the standard of academic writing so that other academics understand what you're doing and in fact expect you to do it and will criticise you for not doing it if you put a journal article in, you know, for example, that um, hasn't dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's of those rules of scholarship. And I understand those rules and I've followed those rules. But I also think that if you want to reach wider audiences, you have to break them because I don't think wider audiences are interested in 
those same rather insular and solipsistic games. Mm. And with that call to pens, that brings us to the close of another episode of Glam City. We're coming to the, the final segment, the glam segment, glam slam segment, where we talk about what's up in our history what's diaries. Up? What's up? Tamsin, what's in your history calendar? I want to go to the Crime and Justice Museum. They have a new exhibition on called City of Shadows, Inner City Crime and Mayhem, which is about... It's my... right up your alley. It is right up my alley. Thanks very much. The but crime, it's... The all... crime bit or the mayhem The bit? mayhem. Please. <laughs> Although that's a socially constructed category. Surely crime. Uh, it's also about my very favourite period, the interwar period. Cool. What about Claire? You, I am looking forward to giving the address at the Eureka's Children Dinner in Melbourne on the 23rd of November. And that is also in conjunction with the Democracy Awards that Eureka's Children, Mm. who are a group of descendants of people who participated in the Eureka Rebellion. I think it's going to be a great night out in old Melbourne town. And I'm going to wander across the road to the White Rabbit Gallery to check out their supernatural exhibition of Chinese art. I know. It's going to be cool. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Claire, for being our guest on Glam City today. You can buy a book at all good good outlets. (laughs) That brings us to the close of Glam City to her today. Thank you, Claire, for being our guest. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website. That's 2SER.com. You can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. And hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Cap and Gown and Claire Wright. I am Claire Wright, historian. And I'm at Anna Hope Clark. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. And if you want to get in touch, please email us glamcity at 2SER.com. Glam Glam out. out.